Revelation 4. After I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven, and the first voice which I heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven, and with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Around the throne were 24 thrones, and seated on the thrones were 24 elders clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder, and before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass, like crystal, And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures, full of eyes, in front and behind, the first living creature like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature with the face of a man, and the fourth living creature with an eagle was was like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within, and day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne saying, worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things And by your will, they existed and were created. This is Revelation 5. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne, a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals for you were slain and by your blood, you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked, and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels, numbering myriads and myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them, saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. So this morning, uh, out of our text, we're going to answer two questions. 
The first question we're going to answer is, is he worthy? Uh, spoiler alert, he is. Okay, so just so you know where we're going, he is. Uh, then the second question we're going to ask this text is, uh, are we worthy? And the answer to that is, uh, is a little bit more nuanced. But in discovering that nuance, what we're going to see is that, uh, that God is opening up to us uh, a world of invitation, a world of belonging and of love that we can scarcely begin to imagine. So those are the questions we're working through this morning. Is he worthy and is we worthy? Is we worthy? <laughs> oh my, are we worthy? Okay. And before we kind of get into unpacking these questions, I want to remind you where we are in the book of Revelation up until this point. So uh, we spent the last two weeks looking at these different uh, letters to different churches. And what we've talked about is how the book of Revelation was a letter. And it was a letter written to seven different churches in the area of Asia Minor. It's the name of the province. And these seven churches were all kind of dealing with different issues. And so to help kind of frame the way that they were to interpret and read the rest of the book, uh, Jesus himself speaks to those churches through the, through the disciple, through the seer John, the prophet. And he addresses the issues that, that each of these churches are experiencing. And there are kind of four, uh, guys, this is exciting this morning. We have this board. I'm excited. Uh, there are four main issues that he addresses in these churches. Uh, the first is the issue of apathy. I kind of think of the church in Ephesus here, that they've, they've lost their first love. Their hearts have grown cold, is what Jesus says to them. Then there are churches wrestling with this issue of affluence. Like we talked about with the church in Laodicea, they say, we have need of nothing. We are totally self-sufficient, and Jesus addresses that in their lives. Then we kind of have this combo of false teaching, and because of that, a kind of false living. Okay, false living. That because the people have become, begun to believe and embrace uh, teachings about God, about who Jesus is that aren't true, it's started to change the way that they live. Like people have started to teach, well, you know, Jesus doesn't really care about your body. Like the body's not that big of a deal, right? Did Jesus even come in a body? And because that's kind of like an open question, it doesn't really matter what you do with your body. So Jesus is addressing that false teaching, the false living that comes out of it. And then the last issue that he addresses uh, is that of persecution, There are people in these churches who are suffering uh, a, great a great degree of persecution because of their faith in Christ. Do you connect with any of those words? With the idea of spiritual apathy, maybe? Maybe you've been at this whole Christian thing a while. You've been checking the boxes, maybe even going to discipleship group, right, coming here on Sunday mornings and yet it feels dead and rote to you? Or maybe with affluence? I don't know that we often think about struggling with affluence, right? Happy to struggle with that one. But maybe if, if we're more specific about it, this idea that because of the, the material wealth that you have, that you actually feel like you don't have a need uh, for Jesus. Yeah, like, he's, a, he's great in this one compartment of your life. Like, happy to interact with him on Sunday mornings. Thank you very much. But the rest of it, I got under control, uh, no need to mess with my stuff. False teaching or false living? There are, just, there are a lot of voices out there competing to tell us who Jesus is. 
and competing to tell us all the ways that we should actually be okay with living because of who Jesus actually is. And it is tough to wade through that sometimes and to sort out what is true. Do any of you connect with that? Persecution? This idea of identifying as a Christian, that it has consequences in our lives. And the people who were going through, who were experiencing this issue, this issue these issues, they were asking the question on some level, uh, is it worth it? Is it worth it? Is it worth it to mess with this whole Christianity thing? Because it's costing something. Like, it's nice when Jesus just adds to our lives, right? Feels like he kind of gives us the pick-me-up when we're feeling sad, or like a burst of energy when we're tired. Like, yes, bring me more of that. But as soon as it starts costing us something, is it worth it? As they're watching their friends literally be murdered, do you think anybody was asking the question, is this worth it? Yeah. Which is the same question that we're asking, isn't it? Is it worth it? And guys, let's be real. The answer to that question really matters, doesn't it? Because if it's not worth it, what are we doing here? Let's go out and get brunch. I've got other ways we can spend our Sunday mornings if this is not worth it. Don't you? <laughs> is it worth it? This is a question that we're always wrestling with in our lives. And not just about God, but about life in general. We're asking, is, is what I'm living for worth it? It made me think of the book Tuesdays with Maury. We're kind of going to go a throw, a, for the throwback on some of our illustrations this morning. So just go with me, okay? Did any of you ever read that book? It came out in like 1998, so, whoa. This is what the guy Mitch Album says about his life as he's introducing himself. He says, I wandered around in my early 20s, paying rent, reading classifieds, and wondering why the lights were not turning green for me. My dream was to become a famous musician. I played the piano. But after several years of dark, empty nightclubs, broken promises, bands that kept breaking up, and producers who seemed excited about everyone but me, the dream soured. I was failing for the first time in my life. You hear what he's asking? Is it worth it? At the same time, I had my first serious encounter with death. My favorite uncle, my mother's brother, the man who taught me music, taught me to drive, teased me about girls, had thrown me a football, the one adult whom I targeted as a child and said, that is who I want to be when I grow up, died of pancreatic cancer. At the funeral, my life changed. I felt as if time were suddenly precious, water going down an open drain, and I could not move quickly enough. No more playing music at half-empty nightclubs, no more writing songs in my apartment, songs that no one would hear. I returned to school. I earned a master's degree, took the first job offered as a sports writer, and instead of chasing my own fame, I wrote about famous athletes chasing theirs. I worked at a pace that knew no hours, no limits. I would wake up in the morning, brush my teeth, and sit down at the typewriter, wow, in the same clothes I had slept in. I buried myself in accomplishments because with accomplishments, I believed I could control things. I could squeeze in every last piece of happiness before I got sick and died, like my uncle before me, which I figured was my natural fate. Do you hear it? He's saying, what's worth it? What is worth me giving my life to? And what he found is that the first thing he gave his life to this pursuit of music, it wasn't worth it. So I'll do, I'll, he said, I'll pursue something else. I won't pursue my fame. I'll get my fame through pursuing other people's fame. Maybe that'll be worth it. And then, plot twist, he encounters his old college professor, Maury, who tells him it's not worth it, but there is something else that is. 
And so Mitch kind of reimagines his whole life. He reorients it toward uh, living for what he believes is worth it, which is uh, for being a good person. Because that's what we do when we're asking this question, is it worth it, is it worth it, is it worth it? We're, re- we're always looking to reorient our lives toward that which has worth and that which gives us worth. But when we're talking about Christianity, when we ask, is it worth it, we can think that we're talking about a set of ideas or a set of principles, right? Is it this like institution or organization or way of thinking about the world, is it worth it? And let me challenge you, this passage is calling us to ask a different question, which is the question, is he worth it? Because ultimately, we're not here because we all assent to a set of facts. We're here because the God of the universe is living and active, and he has shown himself to us. At least that's what we say we believe. And this God, this living God, the question is, is he worth it? And like I said in the beginning, rather than giving us a a, a logical argument and spinning out uh, the pros and cons of believing God is worth it, what God gives to us is a set of images. And what that does is it wakes us up. It reminds us that we are not the arbiters of God as if we should sit in judgment on him to decide whether or not we believe he's worth it. That that has its own kind of conceit. That that God isn't a God if we get to decide whether or not we believe he is worthy of worship. If he is, then it should be obvious, shouldn't it? I hope so. Because if I have to be told that he's worthy, if I can't experience it, then I'm going to have a lot of questions. So what God does is he gives John these images that show us the worthiness of God. I'm just going to spend a few minutes unpacking them, okay? So one of the things we learn from this picture of God's heavenly throne room is there, there's this circle uh, of 24 elders, I could draw little X's for 24 thrones, but that's a lot of work, so I'm not going to do that, okay? So there are 24 elders, and, and we don't really know exactly who they are. This is like true with a lot of the book of Revelation. We have a lot of ideas. Are they people? Do they represent the wholeness of the church across space and time? Are they angelic beings? What we know is that, let's just satisfy ourselves with this. Uh, they, are pe- they, they are beings who are in the presence of God and are dressed all in white, which means God has come and he's purified them. He's cleansed them. They are, in a sense, worthy to be in the throne room. And they have these crowns. And whenever there's a chance to worship, what they do is they take these crowns off and they throw them at God's feet. They throw them at his feet in worship. What they're saying is, God is worthy. So that's this outer ring of worship. And then we kind of zoom in, and there are these four living creatures, right? One that's like a man, one that's like an eagle, one that's like an ox, one that's like a lion. They've got six wings, they're covered in eyes. What is going on here? But they're constantly flying around the throne, and what they're saying is, holy, holy, holy. What the eyes symbolize, what they mean kind of in biblical literature, is that these creatures, these beings, are all seeing, that they're full of wisdom and insight. And in all of that insight, what they call us to is the worship of God. God is holy, he is holy, he is holy. These four different creatures represent all of creation, every kind of created being. And the fullness of creation worships God. The fullness of creation echoes that our God is not a God like us, that he's not just a creation, that he's in fact outside of creation. He stands above it. He's different than it. He's separate than it, but is interested in engaging with it. Holy, holy, holy. 
And at the center of these four living creatures is a throne. The throne, by the way, is the, the most frequently used image in the book of Revelation, over 40 times. And the, the throne, the picture of a throne, has with it this idea of power and authority. And John tells us about the one who is on the throne, but because the one who is on the throne is God, who we believe dwells in unapproachable light, who cannot be pictured with human eyes, right? That's why it's a sin to make an image of God, because he's invisible. To make an image of him, to make him like us, like creation, is uh, to make him not God. And so uh, John can't describe this, this physical person, but he describes this, these, this picture of light, carnelian and jasper, uh, it's this kind of clear, translucent light mixed with this red glow. It's a purifying fire at the center of this worship. And, a, and around the throne, there are flashes of lightning, peals of thunder, the loudest thing imaginable in the ancient world. Like, we are very used to amplified sound. But they didn't live in a world with amplified sound. So the loudest thing they would know is thunder and lightning. And that thunder and lightning is all around God's throne with this rainbow that's green like an emerald and this sea of glass. Is he worthy? And what you've got to know is John is, is counter-programming uh, some very powerful images that are at work in the world. Because there is his emperor, Domitian, and what Domitian required is that whenever anybody would come into his presence, you had to tell Domitian, you are worthy. You are worthy, Lord God. That's what people said when they walked into the presence of this man, of this emperor. And he had developed all of these kind of trappings of an emperor around him, right? He had guards, kind of like four living creatures, right? And he had all this pageantry surrounding him. But what was different about Domitian is that Domitian had to instruct people. He had to punish people if they didn't do it. He had to coerce them into worshiping him and to saying that he's worthy. But there's no coercion in the throne room. That the spontaneous reaction of people being in the presence of God is to fall down in worship because he is worthy. And what it shows is that Domitian's court, the most powerful man in the world, that he was but an imitation that the worship that he claimed that he extorted out of people, it was just this kind of scale model of what was happening in the throne room and, and he was making a mockery of himself. Because this mere man, he's not worthy of worship. But the king, our God, he is. He is worthy. So God is worthy of worship, but what about us? Are we worthy? That I saw on the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. This scroll that's in God's hand the scroll is, uh, is the story of the consummation of all of creation. It's the end. It's the telos would be the Greek word. The direction that all of humanity, that all of creation is hurtling toward. The world that we sang about. Do you wish that you could see it all made new? It's that world. 
And it's a narration of how that world comes to be. And it's all bound up in a scroll, and it's sealed. Sealed like a scroll would have been at that time, like, a, like if an emperor was sending instructions to a general out on the front lines. And he didn't want anybody else to get into those instructions. He would seal it. But only people who had the authority to open those seals and read what was inside were able to open it. Because if that, if that scroll got to the general on the front lines and someone else had opened it, there were going to be a lot of problems. So there's this picture of the world as it should be, the, the, the end that all of the creation is hurtling toward. And there's an angel who cries out, who is worthy to open the scroll? Who can break its seals? And, and it's, it's everyone can hear it, in heaven and on earth and under the earth. The call is addressed to everyone, and no one responds. There's silence. And I begin to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And this word for weep is wail. That John has overcome with grief. He's saying, I, I know what's in here. The news is so good. It's so precious. But is it going to ever happen? Who has the authority to make it happen? Is anyone going to be able to make it happen? That John is longing to look into it, not just to know it, but to experience it. Who is worthy? And what John is acknowledging is that he is not worthy to open the scroll. And that's not unique to him, but that is true about every other creature in all of creation. No one else is worthy. And it undoes him. Now just imagine with me for a moment if we were getting coffee with the Apostle John after he'd had this vision. And he was explaining it to us and he said, and then I got to this part with the scroll. No one could open it and I just broke down because I'm not worthy, no one is worthy. What would we tell him? John, come on. Your self-esteem seems a little low, right? No, you're a good guy. You know Jesus. You like walked with him. You like snuggled with him, whatever that means, right? No, no, no. God, come on. You got to believe in your self-worth. Are you guys with me this morning? Are you? That would be our response. Whenever we feel that sense of unworthiness, what we do with each other, what we pay people to do for us is to tell us, no, 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 that's not true. You are worthy. If you want to go talk about throwback illustrations, the song that kept coming to mind for me was the song Perfect by Pink, right? If you ever feel like you're not perfect, you are perfect to me, is what she says. But if that's true then why this sneaking suspicion that something is wrong? Why do we feel like it's impossible for, for us to earn our worth, that, that we can never do enough, that we can never be good enough? I'm going to read you a Passion Pit song, okay? Also called Perfect. I've heard about you and what you've done. You're over the money, but under the gun. You came in the front door, so where can you run? At least the party's over. Moving slower than you mean to, but it's over at last. And you cry because you missed it. It went by too fast. The world's against you, you say. Then you ask where all your friends have gone to. That's a person who's lonely, right? Who's desperate. Who's aware of their faults and so insecure because of them. And then the chorus is, just tell, tell me I'm so perfect. 
Tell me it all of the time. Tell me I'm so perfect. Tell me it all of the time. It's passion pit, so it repeats. Tell me, tell me I'm so perfect. Tell me it all of the time. Tell me I'm so perfect. Tell me all of the time. And the song ends with thank you. Do you guys connect with that at all? That we're looking around at the people around us saying, tell me, tell me I'm good enough. Tell me I'm perfect. Tell me that you love me. Tell me that I deserve it. And of course we do that because we have lived in a world where when we have come with our hands open and said, will you, will you give me love? Not because I've earned it, but because I'm asking. When we've said that, we've gotten slapped down. Have you ever been slapped down in that place? That you've asked and instead of getting what you've asked for, that you've been beat down, that you've been, you've been hurt, you've been smashed? And so out of reaction to that, we've stopped asking, will you just, will you love me in, in spite of all the things about me that are imperfect? And we've, we've convinced ourselves, no, we are perfect, which means I deserve to be loved, which means I can demand that you treat me the way that I believe that I should be treated. And if you won't treat me that way, I'll leave because I'm worthy of it, because I'm perfect. And we're missing out is what John is telling us to encounter this question of are we worthy and to admit, no, we're not, we're not worthy to open the scroll is this place of profound pain, but it also brings us to a moment of profound freedom. Because this is what happens next. One of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the line of the tribe of Judah, the root of David has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. There is one who is worthy. He's a lion. Right? When you think of a lion, think about the words that come to mind. Fierce, violent, conquering, right? That what we expect John to turn around and see is this emperor who can take on the emperor Domitian. That emperor who's leading this victorious army who's going to crush everyone else, who's going to conquer them. He has conquered. What do you expect when you hear that word, a conqueror? What's going through John's mind? because then he turns. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb. And that word for lamb, there are two Greek words for lamb. There's like big lamb and little lamb. This is little lamb. A lamito, you know? A little lamb. That this lamb is standing as though slain. This little lamb is covered in blood. That what John expects to see is a roaring lion that's got blood dripping from his fangs, and instead what he sees is a little lamb covered in blood. That is our conquering king. That's the picture of Jesus that, that John wants us to hold on to, that Jesus wants us to hold on to, is that the one who is conquered is this little lamb, the one who can identify with us in all of our weakness, in all of our smallness. And who was slain. And he explains why. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. What these elders are singing about is the fact that Jesus, because he was willing to be slain, it, it was for our behalf. It was to accomplish something. It was to bring together a people for himself and to make those people worthy. 
that he saw them in all of their not worth and that he came to cover his people with his worth to wrap it all around us so that when we enter the throne room of God, what is just, what can be expected is that we can be there, not because of our own righteousness, not because of what we have done, not because we're good enough, not because we've earned it, not because we're beautiful enough, because we're thin enough, because we're wise enough, because we're smart enough. No, because of what he has done for us. That he has made us worthy. He has made us worthy. Is that good news? Is that good news? Yes, that is good news because what it means is that you and I can finally be at rest. Do you guys remember remember Cheryl Sandberg? The what was she? The CFO of Facebook. She wrote a very popular book that was popular for a while, okay? It was called Lean In. And the message of the book was, uh, it was specifically directed toward women, but it was, you can have everything. You can have it all. You just got to work hard, people. And there's been a turn against that. That what people have said is, hey, Cheryl, those are unreasonable expectations, Not everybody can do that. Not everybody wants to do that. If the advice is, you know what, just be better, just work harder, and you'll be able to get there. What a burden. And what people are saying in our world is, we can't do it anymore. We need a rest. Yeah, do you need a rest? I'll ask you again. Do you need a rest this morning? Come on, yes! Oh, that is the gift of being given our worthiness is we are finally able to put down all of our striving. Like, who are the people that you want to tell you that you are worthy? Like, maybe your parents? Look, I don't care how old you are. You care about that, don't you? That you want to hear your parents tell you, I'm proud of you. You're worthy. And if you have kids, I'll tell you what, you want to hear your kids say it too. Tell me I'm good enough as a parent. It's in there. Your friends, you want your friends to tell you you're worthy? You you know how I know that we want that? It's because how desperate are you to have somebody initiate with you instead of being the person who always has to initiate? Am I worthy? The guy or the girl that if, if that person just noticed you, then I would finally be okay. Tell me I'm worthy. Show me that I'm worthy. Do you see me? Do you love me? Do you care about me? And think of all of the things that we are willing to do to get that for ourselves. And what the, the fact that Jesus has made us worthy, what it means is we can stop trying to earn it from everyone else and we can bask and rest in the fact that it's true. And because it's true, we are now able to come to the world in a totally different way. But we have been made a kingdom of priests to reign with the Son, which means we have been given, you have been given, if you were in Jesus, power and authority right now. Well, that is news to me. Why don't I feel more powerful? Because the power that you've been given is the power of Jesus, which is the power to suffer. The power to love like he loved, which means that we are now free to enter into all of our relationships with the people that we most desperately want to tell us that we're worthy, and we can look at them, maybe not actually say this, but at least say it in our hearts, okay? 
that what we can say in our hearts is, I don't need you to tell me I'm worthy anymore. I don't need it because it's true about me. And because it's true about me, I'm now free to love you right where you are, no matter what you give to me because of how much I have been given. That we're invited back into this dance of giving and receiving with other people, even knowing that it will cause us pain in our lives because we know that we have been given immeasurably more than all that we can ask or imagine because we have been found, we have been made worthy. So is he worthy? Yes. Are we worthy? We have been made worthy. Let's worship God. Father, thank you for your word. God, we're thankful that you are not a God who has to coerce worship out of us. Lord, that you yourself are good, that you are worthy of all praise. Lord, as we come to you now and confess uh, our unworthiness left on our own, Lord, would that not be a chain for us or something that weighs us down? But would it be so freeing to our hearts to be able to cry out the fact that we are broken, sinful people who are full of shame? And Lord, as we confess that, oh Lord, would you meet us there? Would you remind us that even in that place you loved us, that you came for us, that you gave yourself for us, God? And would you call us into rejoicing, uh, into worshiping the beauty of you, the God who loves, the God who suffers, the God who came to be with us so that we could be with you. Amen.